Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. And today we had a very presidential guest. <laughs> we literally had a presidential guest. Yes. President Joe Bertolino joined us on Real Talk to talk about higher ed, reimagining what, what, what does it mean to be a social justice university? What does the future look like? What does the present look like? How are we doing? It's kind of a mid-semester check-in with the president. So we won't keep you any longer. Have a listen. Hello, welcome to Real Talk. Real Talk is about real conversations with real people regarding diversity in higher education. I am your co-host, Jamil Harp, a student activist. And I'm Casey Counselor, a professor in the Communication, Media, and Screen Studies Department at Southern Connecticut State University. All right, Jamil, let's go. Hello. So, Casey, today we have a very special guest on. Yes, we do. We have President Joe Bertolino with us to have this conversation. Hi, how you doing? Good to see you. Thank you for the invitation. Yes. So, President Joe, how has the transition been back to campus? Well, we're here. We are here. That's always a good start. And quite frankly, I think that having an opportunity to see people face-to-face in real time and in real life has certainly been a blessing. I know that there has certainly been a great deal of excitement and that can be seen just by stepping outside and seeing folks interact and hearing folks interact. I'm really proud of uh, the transition. I think we've, I think we've done a nice job. Um, the, the first couple of days here at the university, it was pretty clear. Students, faculty, staff, I think there was a sense of relief and excitement. Not that there wasn't worry about the Delta variant, but all in all, folks were, were ready to roll up their sleeves and do what they needed to do to make sure that we stay here. And I think the numbers reflect the work that we have done and that we c- continue to do as a community, not just as an institution, but as a community to keep ourselves safe and to keep each other safe. So I'm really, really pleased and, and, and proud of, of, of where we are. And um, I think we're going to keep going in that direction. I think we're going to be okay. Yeah, I'm curious about your your bird's eye view of the university. I mean, I know the students that I work with in the classroom and the faculty that I've been working with. Obviously, you have a bigger picture. And I would totally agree. I'd say that, that people overall are grateful to be back, realizing the value of being in physical space together. And also, I feel like there's something, you know, at this moment, this is sort of a hard time in the semester for some students and for, for many of us in general coming up on midterms, we have the change of seasons, but mental health, you know, is, is very much on my mind. And I see students both doing well, but then also I see a lot of folks struggling and part of it, I mean, I wonder, you know, this is my question to you, I guess, is what are you seeing, you know, university wide are still recovering our stamina since the pandemic in terms of, of quote unquote, ordinary life? Well, Casey, I I agree with you. I I think that first and foremost, we need to understand that we are not back to normal. And I also think it's important for us to remember that normal 
will be redefined. It, it is being redefined and it will be redefined. So I don't believe for a moment that we will go back to where we were or how we acted or reacted pre-pandemic. A lot has happened. And it's important for us not to forget both the successes that we've had, but also the pain and the struggle that individuals have been through. I would say that right now, yes, individuals are excited. Yes, individuals have certainly um, participated in the return process, the healing process. But the truth of the matter is beyond that, folks are exhausted. Mm -hmm. mentally and physically, but mostly mentally. I think it's also important to remember we don't know what people have been through. Right. For some individuals, several folks have uh, essentially, they may have lost jobs themselves or people in their households lost jobs. They may have had family members or others who were infected, some they may have lost family and friends. So it's very difficult to say, but the emotional, the toll emotionally that this has taken on virtually everyone, I, I think is, is significant and we shouldn't, we shouldn't miss that point. It, it's, there's also, it's exhausting to constantly be on Zoom. <laughs> yes, it is. Other platforms for that matter, because there is such a thing as virtual exhaustion. When you are physically present, I could, for example, have a meeting, stop, walk across campus, say hello to people. Mind you, I'd be late, but there were interactions there. When you are in a virtual setting, you're moving very quickly from one meeting to the next meeting, to the next event, to the next event. And there's really no break. And that break usually doesn't involve other human beings all the time. So I think that we need to be cognizant of each other's health, mentally and otherwise. And I would encourage people actually to be empathetic. Of course. A lot of times, yeah. and I don't use that word loosely. I think it's very important. It's frustrating. I'll, I'll be in a meeting or I'll get an email or I'll get a reaction from someone about something. It comes with a job. And sometimes, as of late, I will have to pause and say, okay, what, why is this person responding in this way? And what is the relationship to what people have experienced for the last 18 months? Because folks are on edge. Folks, patience has, has worn thin. And so I, I just think that we need to be cognizant of that and, and empathetic to it. Yeah. And it's not, you know, we're still trying to maintain this, the pace of the semester. And I, you know, I see that in the classroom too students who are frustrated, you know, oftentimes when we are frustrated and taxed and exhausted, we are also exhausting to others <laughs> in the, you know, just in how we are. And, and um, that being mindful, I think is, is, is critical. 
I did have a couple, you know, we want to, of course we will, you know, the podcast is all about diversity in higher ed. Of course we want to talk to you about social justice university, but I did have some students today. I said, Hey, we're going to talk to president Joe on the podcast. What do you want to talk about? And I'm thinking, Oh, they're going to want to talk about mental health. They're going to want to talk about racial justice. They wanted to know when can we take our masks off? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, you know, we could talk about that, but I don't know that he's going to know the answer to that. But uh, then I started thinking, you know, honestly, like, what is this going to look like as we, it's sort of a slow emergence from the pandemic. So how do you imagine the next couple semesters looking for us? I think that we will see an increase in presence, in physical presence. I think that as more individuals become vaccinated and as the numbers decline or stay steady in the low numbers, which they currently are on campus, we will have reached a threshold of herd immunity. And once that happens, that provides us with more options related to social distancing, being masked or unmasked. Yeah. The pandemic has impacted all of us differently. You know, Mm -hmm. there's mental health cries. There is cries about people's physical health. There have been cries about racial injustice happening this year and previously. So that's a lot to unpack for students. So are Mm -hmm. there additional accommodations being made for students regarding mental health, maybe outside of counseling services beyond that, that students are being able to take advantage of? Yeah, actually, students will hear more because the system, the Connecticut State College and University System and Southern have partnered with some third-party entities that will provide students with uh, mental health support that is not just on campus, but that is also virtual and will meet the needs of students in any particular moment I don't have the specifics of that, Jamil, but I, I just actually got the email from the system today, and uh, Dr. Tyree was also sharing the work that they had done, um, in, and, and so I expect that soon you will students will hear more about that, because we don't have the capacity internally to meet all of the need and the demand. I think our partnerships with Yale New Haven and Cornell Scott and with other agencies throughout New Haven and in the surrounding towns will provide our students with access and will provide our students with options. So more to come on that front, but I'm actually pleased that that that's a direction that we're headed. I mean, as you know, I'm a social worker by training, so I am a big fan of, of supporting uh, mental health, people having someone to talk to, any counseling or therapy at any level, I, I think is, is, is healthy uh, for individuals, even more so during this difficult time. So. That's great. That's great. And I do, you know, you bring up your background as a social worker and Jamil and I have been talking about this, how 
wondering, wanting to hear from you, you know, you came in as the social justice president or coming in to say like, I, you know, as president, I will, you know, bring Southern into this, we will aspirationally be a social justice university. And really, you know, that's the reason that the podcast is here. So it's the, it is the reason why we're all sitting here today. Um, it's the reason why I, I applied to work at Southern. Um, so in many ways, it's sort of that commitment is is what what has us have this conversation today. But we'd love to hear from you. I, you know, we want to know how you think we're doing. But where did that where did that come from? And if you'd share a little bit about that that story with us, sure. I'm I'm chuckling because this has not been an easy road, and this uh, I think sharing the 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 desire and an authentic desire at that to aspire to be a social justice university uh, is perhaps it is more challenging than i i even thought it would be and just when you think you have momentum on a number of issues then you have a pandemic, which on the one hand brought to light even more injustice and it became more pronounced in, in some ways. And I think also, also just reinforced the need and the work that we need to be engaged in. What I don't want to get lost is the fact that despite everything that needs to be done, I do think it's important that we take pride in what we have done. And I don't know if we always do that or do that particularly well. When I was president of Linden State in Vermont, I had decided that I wanted each academic year to be a themed year. And so I chose as the starting point the year of social justice. That would emerge into a year of compassion, um, a year of change, a year of responsibility, different themes throughout the course of, of my time period there. And from there, that was a jumping off point for a number of programs and initiatives and supports that we would provide as an institution at an institution that while predominantly white was in a rural environment in one of the lowest socioeconomic regions of the state. And so the diversity and justice component in that environment actually centered on poverty and not just issues of race and racism and, and gender. The core of what we were talking about in terms of social justice, again, in that environment were issues of poverty. So when I came here, I was, first I was excited that I was returning to a more diverse campus. I had spent eight years as a vice president at Queens College at the City University of New York, 
which was a highly diverse campus. It was one of the most diverse campuses in the country. And so I loved that experience. I loved living that experience of being a part of a community where diversity and multiculturalism were celebrated, were valued, um, and were reflected in the student population, and in some cases in, in the faculty and staff that worked at the institution. So I think when I came to Southern, I saw a lot of that possibility in the Southern community. I, I was also drawn to where we are located and who we serve and what are the demographics of New Haven and Hamden. I mean, I just saw opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And that to me was, was personally and professionally exciting. I had been a social justice educator. I am a social justice educator for decades. And as, as a result, I think I just took the plunge, quite frankly. I'm not going to say that it was well thought out and intentional. Okay. I was always curious about that. Was it well thought out? No, so that's, <laughs> no I'm curious about that. No, you know, look, I, I think it's, it was more of a value proposition. This is what I believe in. I have the privilege of serving as a leader of an and institution. And this is how you're showing up to the work. Yes. And so from my perspective, this is the right thing to do. Now, I will confess that in my enthusiasm, I put it out there and, and I remember doing it. I, I remember, remember being on. The, <laughs> was I in front of the library? Where, where was I? I can't remember. I thought yeah, that was it, but you, it wasn't. You were event. there in the area. Yes. <laughs> I was at an event and I said, we are going to be a social justice institution. And I said that with a great deal of pride and I meant it. And at some point, I find my way back to my office, and the leadership team is, we're all sitting here, and they're like, so what does that mean, and what are we going to do? <laughs> oh, those questions. <laughs> well, you know, um, I've been at Southern since you started. You know, when you started as a president, I was just starting SEOP, so I've been able to watch the, your leadership grow mm -hmm. in terms of social justice, you know, us starting at Social Justice Week and moving to Social Justice Month and having different changes on campus. And then I think last year, you know, when Black Lives Matter started to really take hold and move across our nation and across our own campus, you know, we hit this momentum of anti-racism that really helped move our social justice needle, if you ask me, on campus. But you think since that moment, have we lost momentum in terms of our anti-racist work on campus? Here's that dramatic pause that we were talking about earlier, right? I don't know the answer to that question, Jamil. This is a little tougher than I thought it would be. So the answer is, <laughs> This is, this is such a, a, a political answer. The answer is yes and no. Um, <laughs> that have we lost some momentum? I think the answer to that is I think we lost momentum naturally because 
of COVID. But I also think that we lost momentum in some ways because the organizational structures that are in place have made it within the system, within the state, even within our own institution, have made it very difficult to get certain things done. I'll give you a great example. We're still trying to hire staff for the diverse, for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, you know that. And I think I can safely say that, that Diane is frustrated by that, and rightfully so. I'm frustrated by that. And I can't believe the barriers, some of which I believe are self-imposed, and the hurdles that we've had to jump through to do searches and to get things completed. So, And I think the same holds true when it comes to financial issues, et cetera. So from an organizational perspective, our inability to get those things done stops us from getting other things done and moving the work forward in the way that we'd like to move it at, at the speed that we'd like and we need to move it. That's the yes part. If we have, uh, you know, if we've kind of, uh, I don't know, what, what, what is it, slowed down the process or, or, or lost momentum, I believe those were words. However, I also think that because we've made investments in DEI, because we've made the commitment, because even within the institution's priorities, we have made the statement that we are going to be an anti-racist and not just a social justice institution, all of those things say to me that we're moving the needle. It may not be as fast as people want it to be, but let me talk about the politics of this, because I, I think this is very important. And I would love to hear it. I do, because you have an interesting perspective. Yeah. You know, when I was approached about this, documents came across my desk and said, we're going to be a social justice and anti-racist institution. And anti-racist was circled as it hit my desk because the individuals at the institution who are responsible to ad advise me and provide me with a perspective, you know, wanted to know more about that. They're like, I is this who we want to be? And if we say this, does it mean that we are not anti other things? And what is the message that we're delivering? And I thought that was a fair question. And I think it, it is a question that I don't know if I have an answer to it. I think it's very complex. I also think it's generational, quite frankly. But that's just my opinion, being the, the generation that I am in. I'm 57 years old, and I have a particular lens. And I've been fortunate enough to, to be in roles and, and acquire education that allows me to get some spray and, and clear that lens off in a way that's, uh, I think, positive and constructive. But yeah, I think that, that I got pushback. And let me ask a question about that. So, so I actually, I'm in, a, I'm in a course right now with Loretta Ross. I mention her on the podcast a lot because I, I learned so much from her um, in terms of how we have these conversations. Um, but she just this past week was talking about anti-racism and why her movement, she's an old school intersectional feminist, really powerful movement leader. And she talks about 
you know, like building a human rights movement. And then if, if we're, of course we should be anti-racist, but if we define ourselves as anti-racist, we also anti-homophobia, anti-misogyny, all of these things. And then do we want to, okay, we know what we are against, but we also have to, like, shouldn't we first define ourselves by what we are for? And, you know, there's an argument to be made on many sides of that. But what I wonder about people's response to anti-racism, because I'm thinking the pushback, that's not the reason for the pushback, maybe. But I wonder if it's because that term anti-racism tends to polarize people and might might draw attention to the university in a negative way. Is that what their fear is, do you think? I don't think there's a consistent theme here, Casey. I think it varies. I think that for some, it is, well, again, why are we only anti-racist? I thought, I thought social justice was all-encompassing. And where do I fit in? That, people will always ask me that question. Where do I fit in in that value proposition um, as a gay man, as someone of, of a non-Christian faith, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's interesting that you bring up this point because I think there is truth to the fact that at some point there's also a handful of folks that are saying, how will this be interpreted externally? If we say strive to be an anti-racist institution, are we admitting to something that we don't want folks to, to weaponize to hurt the institution? Now, I don't, I don't believe that that's the case, obviously, but I understand why people might think that way. And for some, it's about a desire to protect whatever it is they're protecting. I don't know if they're protecting the institution or they're protecting themselves or they're protecting the privileged structures. We could certainly dissect that. But um, no, I am... Um, that ultimately a lot was thrown at me and that's what I want. I have an expectation that individuals are going to provide me with all kinds of feedback, a lot of which I may not want to hear or like, but feedback that represents a variety of constituencies internally and externally, because I have a responsibility not just to students, quite frankly. I, I, I take very seriously my responsibility. I am responsible for the lives of 13,000 people. I take that very seriously. I am responsible for their safety. I am responsible for their for a lot, a lot of folks, for their education and for their livelihood. They count on me to be successful or to ensure the institution is successful so that they can be successful. I don't take any of that lightly. So it is important for me to hear all of those perspectives. Now, you could assume I got a lot of, I got, I got my share of mail since I've been here, some of which is not particularly kind. <laughs> I'm sure. As it relates to social justice and anti-racism. I often joke because when people say to me, well, we're not, I'm not going to give to the institution anymore. Well, according to the records, you weren't given anyway. So we move beyond that. But I also think it's important for us to understand that there is a constituency at our institution 
who are members of our community who have a very different perspective. And we may not agree with that perspective, but it's my responsibility to find a way to build a bridge that at least allows individuals to engage the conversation and for individuals to know that, that they are members of this community. And that is not an easy, uh, I wish the bridge were just one direction, but it's not, it's a pretty crooked bridge. It can be very complicated. I get calls from parents all the time from, from a different, that, that have a different point of view. And why is it safe for my child to be there? So it's, it's, I would imagine. Anyway, I made a decision ultimately that I thought was the right thing to do for our institution and stood by our belief system, our values, and is reflects who the members of our community are and who's coming to our institution. So I want to move this conversation along in terms of thinking about, because, you know, I have many thoughts on the state of our social justice, as you would imagine. I've been in this work with you for quite some time. I'm, I am oh, shocked. So <laughs> where we're at and where we're going. But I want to hear from the president of our university on future plans, mm. your future imagination on social justice. Where are we going next? What are the next thoughts, the next big plans for us? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm, I want to spend more time with you. So I'm, I'm about to tell the other person that I'm supposed to connect with at 345 that I'm going to be running a little bit late. So there we go. That takes care of that. <laughs> that is such a loaded question. <laughs> and don't you love it? <laughs> I, you know, I wouldn't expect anything less. I have multiple thoughts here. First, it is low-hanging fruit, and yet it isn't. I, I think that we can't move anywhere until DEI is fully staffed and fully resourced. I appreciate that. Period. So that's not a big goal, so to speak. I mean, from my perspective, that's baseline. But we need to do that. And I know we're doing that and we're doing it slowly, but I've run out of patience. It's not Diane's fault, but that needs to happen. And I think we've, we've located a space uh, for DEI. And um, so I am looking forward to that because I think what will happen there is we will have developed a team that will think about these issues critically, intentionally, and broadly. And those thoughts and ideas will come to the leadership of the institution. And then it will be our responsibility to say, this is what we can do, this is what we can't do right now, and these are the resources we can provide. Now, we have received uh, and are continuing to receive advice and counsel and suggestions from uh, the DEI advisory group. And we did have some initial conversations and they shared with me uh, and with the leadership of the university, pretty robust plan, basically a roadmap, if you will, that said, we need to be doing this, 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 and this. And I sat back and I read it and the team read it. And I agreed with all of those things. The challenge 
for me and for the leadership was, okay, how do we prioritize those? Um, and how do we make those things happen? And how do we tell folks that there are some things that may not happen or they may not happen now? Because people don't always want to hear that. But there are, there are some realities. I would like a couple things to happen in terms of my dream, yes. if you will. I don't it's even know like if, if it's that. I would like every student that comes to this institution to have an experience or a set of experiences that connect them to social justice and anti-racism in some way, shape, or form. Um, I don't know exactly what, what that looks like, but if, if we can have students uh, go through INQ, then there's no reason why we shouldn't be doing something in, in that vein related to social justice. Secondly, my dream is that our entire curriculum, that social justice would be infused in our entire curriculum across the university in an intentional way. Not just a, oh, this is a social justice course. Woo-woo. You know, not that there isn't value in that, but it, it has to be deeper than that. It has to be more intentional, which then means that in order for that to happen, we as an institution need to be preparing our, helping our faculty to create that curricular content to help them make that connection so that it can be part of their discipline uh, and, and the work they do in the classroom and outside of the classroom. And I would very much, again, if, 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 I, if the world was my oyster, our faculty and staff would mirror our student population. We have 46% of our students identify as students of color. Boy, it'd be great to have 46% of our faculty and staff who are in individuals um, from a variety of different groups. I mean, I mean, that would be amazing. We're loving this. Keep going. <laughs> and I want to be able to go to my meeting at the American Council on Education. And when they say, when I say, oh, hi, I'm Joe Bertolino. I'm the president at Southern. Oh, that's that institution doing all that social justice and anti-racism work, cool. right? Yes. That's what I, I like want. that you bring up were 46%. I didn't realize 46% yes. students of color. This year, it's, um, it's exciting to see, but the burden, maybe, I should, maybe burden is too strong a word, but the weight, the weight, that's probably a better choice of words. I feel the weight of that responsibility because if our students are to be successful. Now, I'm glad you brought up the 46%. And this has been a conversation since I've been at Southern. And I know you have heard this conversation many times before. What are your thoughts about expansion of the multicultural center and expansion of that experience for students? I don't know. I think it depends on what that looks like. It's not just about 
I mean, right now, the center is very limited. It is very focused on clubs and organizations. It isn't that there's very little, if any, conversation, I think, about um, leadership, career development, counseling, academic support that is geared toward students who have a different experience. I don't know if, if I know what that would look like. I'm not opposed to anything. But it can't just be, well, we just need bigger space and more staff. I mean, yes, maybe you do need more space and more staff. But if you're not strategic about it, I'm a good example. I said to you, I got excited. I said, here we go. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, now I need to think this through. So I'm hesitant to jump into something unless we have a plan. And then it's my responsibility to find a way to resource that plan. Because, forgive me for going on a tangent here, Jamil, but it's important. One of the greatest challenges that I have faced since being here is that in saying that we would be a social justice institution, I didn't set expectations in the way that I needed to. And the result of that is that people get frustrated because we're not moving fast. Well, Joe, you just said that. And I understand that. I, I own that. And so now, every time I'm in conversations about DEI work and other work, I keep asking those that are around me, I don't want to set unrealistic expectations that we cannot meet. I don't want to do that to the community. That's not fair. And so, for example, when the group came to us with a proposal, I'm like, I just can't say this is great. Let's go. When, because it would set up an expectation that just isn't fair. So I'm not opposed to, to anything related to multicultural affairs. I just, I just need us to know, I just need us to have a plan. And then we need to have a candid conversation about how does that plan help us to recruit and retain diverse students, faculty, and staff? And how do we resource that? So that will that now be a part of the conversation, knowing what we know now that we need plans, we need intentions? Will that be something we can look forward to as a part of the conversations of what's happening next? In, you mean in general? Um, in terms of the multicultural center, but also... <laughs> <you know. laughs> <laughs> You're not going to back me into a corner with, with one. Uh, I respect that, though, Jamil. I do. I respect it. I think that what will happen is, is that, uh, again, first and foremost, we're going to prioritize. Actually, the, the, the group that put together the recommendations are prioritizing those recommendations, which is something we had asked them to do. And I expect them to come back and and we'll talk about that. Is the Multicultural Center in those recommendations? I think so, but I can't entirely recall. And secondly, I like to, to think that I hire good people who are better than me and who are strong where I may not necessarily be. I, I am not the DEI expert. Yes, I'm a social justice educator. Yes, I have an awareness but I'm not going to stand up and say, this is my area of expertise. 
I have certain values, I have a commitment. But it is important for me, to me, that Diane is able to assemble a team and that that team is able to provide consultation and recommendations. When I work with the vice presidents of the institution, uh, my philosophy is always the same. You're the expert. I count on you to, to do what you need to do and to run that division. I count on you to develop relationships across the university with the other vice presidents and the other divisions. And my job is to support you, find you resources, and get out of your way. So I have an expectation that we will reach a point where the DEI team will say, Joe, we need permission from the leadership because we, we need to do this, this, and this. Okay? What are the resources that are needed? We need this, this, and this. Go. Do what you need to do. Tell, tell me what you, what you need me to do. Uh, you know, more often than not, for, for me, my job, my job actually is not running the day-to-day of the institution. It's mostly raising money, dealing with legislators, dealing with external folks, and helping to navigate resources. So we often joke that, that every time Mark Rizuski, our, our chief financial officer, sees me coming, you know, he wants to close the door because he's like, uh-oh. Because I'll be the first one to say, look, this is the commitment we've made to DEI. I need this to be funded. Here's where Thank we need to go. Thank you for clarifying that. Because we have a lot of students that listen in, and they may not understand completely what your role is as president. So thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> yeah. That's true. You know, I there. think, yeah, yeah, please. Well, I'm also just thinking about our listeners at other universities and at other types of organizations, you know, mostly folks are listening from other universities, but you're speaking to the, you know, we have existing, like things like the Multicultural Center have been around for a long time. And then there are so many other universities right now who are building new divisions, trying to build capacity, dealing with their own institutional bureaucracy and roadblocks, whatever that looks like. And so I think that this conversation really is relevant to figuring out strategically, how do we be the most effective? How do we actually create institutional change, which is not an easy thing to do? You can't do any of it unless you have a commitment from the top. Yep, that's true. Or you can, but it's a lot lot messier. Well, you can, but I think that it's going in both directions, Casey. It needs to be both grassroots and support from the top simultaneously. And we as administrators need to be proactive and not reactive when it comes to these issues. I mean, most, um, when, when you see what is happening in other parts of the country, institutions that find themselves having difficulties are usually individual, individual campuses that have not been proactive. They're reacting to something. And they're also, uh, well, I don't need to talk about others. Uh, look, that it, it's important for us to be proactive when we can. And if something happens, we need to own it. There is value in saying, you know, we fall short here. There's value in saying, yes, we screwed that up. There's value in president saying, Help me, please. 
we're a community. And there's value, I think, in administrators taking the time to listen, even when it's difficult to hear. I remember when we had an incident here a few years ago, and I remember saying to my team, it was 4.30 in the afternoon, and my immediate response was, nobody goes home. Everybody stop. I want, it is important for us to provide an opportunity for people to speak, to share, and for us to shut up and listen. And that was an important moment, I think, for us as, as an institution. It was both painful. It was a moment that was painful and also one that made me feel proud as I watched our students confront us, confront the institution and confront the system. But see this, what we're experiencing right now, Jamil, you and I have spoken a lot over the years, and sometimes we've agreed, and sometimes we haven't, and sometimes you have given me heck. I have. And sometimes I have challenged you back, and that's the environment that we need to have, because we can still sit here, engage this conversation, agree or not agree, and still go out for a cup of coffee. Very much. And that's the type of environment that I hope we will create. And I think we have been creating because we have done things. We have done these things. We have had these discourses over the years. This is very true. And now I'm thinking about the long run, you know, your legacy at Southern in terms of social justice. You know, one day when you put that ticket in and retire or when the job is done, what do you hope that legacy around social justice is? Well, first of all, the job is never done. Let's start with that. And secondly, I don't really care what my legacy is because someday I'm going to be, look, I'm already a picture on a wall in the library. And someday I'm just going to be one of the dead guys up there. Okay. I, I mean, it's true. Honestly, <laughs> you know, when you go up there, you look now and, and I'm sure some people did some wonderful things, but nobody knows who these people are. So, my hope is that, so, so I'm not going to call it my legacy because I think it's what is our legacy as a community going to be. But more importantly than that, it's not about a legacy. It's about creating something that continues, creating something that is ongoing, not something that was Sometimes the, the good leaders, I think, provide opportunities for others to take over so that they're forgotten. So I want my legacy to be a structure. I want the legacy to be that it just becomes a part of the culture that everything we do is about social justice and anti-racism. That people don't have to think about it because they're doing it because it's part of the culture, because it is who we are. It's what we value. It's what we believe in. Now, that might be idealistic, but I'll take it. I think that that uh, when I think of uh, legacy, I'm hoping that that, you know, someday 
you, you'll walk up, uh, you'll, you'll come visit Bewley Library, maybe with your own children who are attending Southern at the time. I'll be wherever. And you'll look and you'll point to that guy whose picture is on the library wall. And you'll say, see him? He was President Joe. He was a good guy and he cared about us. And he tried to make things better. That's it. And then your kids will look at you and they'll go like, okay, dad. And then, but whatever. If one day I do have children, I can promise that they will become Southern Owls. Um, well, they, they can at least, you can at least visit. Yes. Well, President Joe, thank you so much for joining us today and for doing this, you know, visioning work. Um, a lot of what we are trying to do is, is really reimagine in creative ways what higher education can look like, what our campus can look like. And thank you, you know, to be continued. You're not going anywhere yet. <laughs> You're it's not by choice, so yeah. Nope. So anyway, to be continued, but thank you again so much for your generosity in joining us today. Oh, we've met Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Let's do this again sometime. Season thank four. You.